Welcome to Village Church of Gurney podcast. Join us as we start in a new series through Micah. The name of the series is called Hope Amidst the Darkness. And Pastor David will be preaching from Micah 1. The name of the sermon is Love Through Judgment. Let's join Pastor David now. Sir Brandon said, we are starting the Old Testament prophet Micah. And we'll be in this book, uh, actually leading us all the way up until we hit Advent, which is not that far around the corner. So if you have access to Scripture, please meet me in the book of Micah. And if you're new to the study of Scripture uh, and are locating it in your Bible, if you hit Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, you went a little too far, turn left and keep flipping until you find the book of Micah. It comes right after uh, the book of Jonah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. We're titling this series, Hope Amidst Darkness. And as Pastor Brandon has already aptly put it and very succinctly uh, said, we find ourselves in a hard, dark season. And we take great comfort in knowing that we are not the first people to go through a hard, difficult, dark season, all the while holding out hope. And that's what the book of Micah is going to show us week after week, passage after passage, text after text. So today we're going to look at Micah chapter 1. Micah chapter 1. I'm just going to read a a few select uh, verses before we get into uh, the text uh, today. Micah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moreshet in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. These are capitals of the northern and southern part of the kingdom. Verse 2. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple, verse 3, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Why? Verse 5, jump to verse 5. All this for the transgression of of Jacob. Now verse 7, and all her carved images or idols shall be beaten to pieces, and her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. That's verse 7. Look at the first part of verse 8. We're jumping around right here at the beginning. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Why? Jump all the way to verse 16, the very last phrase of chapter 1. Micah chapter 1, verse 16, very last phrase. Why all this? For they shall go from you into exile. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, we come to your word. May you speak. May we listen. And may our lives be changed as a result. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, We see this pattern of idolatry coming up through this portion of Scripture and a whole bunch of other places of Scripture as well, but this pattern of idolatry 
is putting God-sized hope in things that, that aren't God. <laughs> it's, it's turning to things other than God to, to fulfill our deepest needs, our hopes, our dreams. It's, it's resting in things that promise what only God can truly promise, and they can't deliver on them. That is what idolatry is. And often, when you and I hear the word idol or idolatry, perhaps images of uh, wood-carven figurines or gold or metal statues pop into mind. And we might think in 21st century, uh, the Western world, well, we don't, I mean, we don't have idols here. And there are many places around the world that there still are those type of idols, or, or perhaps a, a small uh, temple outside of someone's home, perhaps uh, something people would go to to burn incense and to pray to gods. And we might think in the Western world, well, we're exempt from that. I don't, I don't have any statues in my home. I don't uh, burn anything or, or pray to a figurine. And yet, when we look at our hearts, when we start to ask the question, what are some things in my life that speak God-sized promises to me? And what are some things in my life that I'm putting God-sized hope in to answer some of the questions that only God can answer, to fill some of the needs only God can fill? And if we start to ask it that way, we actually have a lot of idols, don't we? One of the reformers said that our hearts are idol-making factories. We think of all sorts of creative ways to put our hope and our trust in things that aren't God. And that is idolatry. Where do we look for pleasure or joy? Perhaps longing for places like Aruba. Fill our minds with uh, this image of rest and peace. And if I could just get there, then all my problems will be washed away in the blissful, salty sea air. Or perhaps we look at things like love. Where do I find love? Is it in romance? Is it, is it in the pursuit of, of wanting people to be delighted in me and pleased in me? And we spend our entire lives people-pleasing, don't we? Longing for love. Looking for this or that relationship, hoping that this or that person will, will fill that God-sized need of our hearts. Perhaps we look for power. Where does that come from? Does it come from our achievements? Does it come from the size of our, our networks? Does it come from the, the depth of our influence? And we will search and search and search and search and search. How about identity? There's another one, a big, a big one of our time. Where do we find our identity? Is it in what we do? Is it the credentials that you add on to sign your name on emails? Is it in your sexuality? Is your identity wrapped up in the relationships you find yourself in? Maybe your role as a mother or a father or a grandfather. Where do we look for all these things? And if we look for things that aren't God, we have an idol. We too find hope and trust and rest in things that sometimes are not God. And sometimes these are overtly sinful things, but often... They're good things, fine things. Nothing wrong with your career, nothing wrong with relationships, nothing wrong with all these things, yet when they become ultimate things in our heart, now we're bowing our knee to someone or something that is not our one true God of the universe. And after 500 years, think of the patience, the loving patience of our Father. 
After 500 years, the prophet Micah speaks. And we see that God confronts Israel's idolatry. He confronts it. He goes toe-to-toe against it. He, he goes nose-to-nose against Israel's idolatry. And look what he says. Remember in these first four verses? The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moreshet in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you, Micah says, God's mouthpiece, God's prophet. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple, verse 3, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him. Look at the power that God has when he comes. The mountains melt. The valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. And the opening verses of the book of Micah show God entering the scene as all three, witness, <laughs> prosecutor, and judge. And he has all the information. He has the complaint. And he has the authority to execute judgment and justice over uh, the world, over the earth. Because he is our creator, our sovereign God who designed all things and to whom we live underneath and live according to or not according to his design for us. And God enters the scene. Why? Because Israel, God's people, have been living outside of the covenant relationship that they have found themselves in with Yahweh, the God of the universe. Now this covenant can very, as succinctly as I can describe it, as it's a relationship between two parties, God and his people, where God saves, God's people respond in faithfulness and obedience and loyalty to him. God says, I'll save, I'll deliver, I'll redeem, I'll do all the work. You, my people, in this moment of scripture, Israel, you respond to me in loyalty and obedience and trust and relationship. Some of you perhaps uh, know this passage well. Remember the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus and also said again in the book of Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments? Listen to what these first two verses say, or verses two and three, I should say. Exodus chapter 20, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, and so on and so forth. Down the Ten Commandments we go. Do you catch that pattern? This is a covenant type of pattern. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Shorthand, I saved you. I just saved you, I delivered you, I redeemed you from the, your captors. I brought you out of Egyptian slavery. I also saved you and redeemed you from my own wrath poured out against sin. Remember the scene where the blood was shed around the doorpost and the Passover lamb? God says, I just delivered you, I saved you out of sheer grace and out of my power to show you and the world that salvation is only found in me. So says God. Therefore, therefore, in light of that, because of that, you shall have no other gods before me. 
And then on the Ten Commandments go. And this is the covenant pattern of God's grace. I move, you respond in loyalty and obedience. And this is a covenant commitment. There is no stronger commitment made known to the Bible. <laughs> this is a covenant commitment. Oftentimes, nowadays, we think in terms of contracts, don't we? If we think of the most uh, legally binding agreement between two people in the experience that we have day to day, we'd, we'd be thinking about a contract. And a covenant is like a contract, but it's not like a contract in the sense that we have contracts because we kind of assume a level of distrust. We kind of assume there isn't a relationship between the two parties, so if we don't make a contract, who knows what's going to happen to us? So we put it in writing. We say, this is binding. You can't budge an inch because we're not quite sure about the other person. The covenant's not like that in the sense that it doesn't assume there is no relationship. It assumes there is a loving relationship of love and trust and commitment, and we can trust the character of God that when He says He's promising something, He will deliver on those promises. This is the covenant commitment made with God and His people that brought us all the way up to the book of Micah. So why is God therefore coming in judgment in this portion of the Bible? Why? Verse 5. All this, verse 5, is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? These are capital cities, remember, of the northern and southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. Verse 6, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. The city is going to be destroyed. This is an image of a flourishing city that is leveled. Verse 7, all her carved images shall be beaten into pieces, and all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return." What's happening in this moment is Israel is, is breaking their side of the covenant through idolatry, which is misplaced loyalty. Remember what God said? I saved you, so respond in loyalty. Israel says, I'm going to give my loyalty to other gods. I'm going to run to the arms of other lovers. Israel breaks their part of the covenant through idolatry and through just sin, disobedience where God says, because I've saved you and redeemed you and made you mine, this is now how you and I live in relationship. That obedience flows from our relationship. We don't obey to try to get relationship. <laughs> and in that obedience, God's people in this moment of Scripture are disobeying and they're, they're misplacing their loyalty in other gods. And that's why it's no mistake. It's, it's kind of shocking language. The prophets are going to say some, it's going to feel a little edgy. Oftentimes when you read the prophets, if you're not kind of wincing here and there, we're probably not reading them close enough. So when it says in verse 7 that God is coming down to destroy her idols, for the fee of a prostitute she gathers them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. And what God is saying 
is that idolatry is, is spiritual infidelity to God. It's when we run to the arms of other lovers. It's when God gives us all these promises and we turn and we find, we try to fulfill those promises elsewhere. We try to fulfill those hopes elsewhere. And God is the bridegroom. God's people are the bride. And we often flee from him. And even though he's poured out all of his grace to us, see the brokenheartedness of our God and his love toward us. When we run to other gods, and, and we do this all the time, all the time, we try to find peace in the midst of chaos. You know where we often try to find peace amidst these crazy times? In control. We try to control our circumstances, and control our setting, and control, and control, and control. Why? Because we're looking for a measure of peace. We're looking for this hope that everything's going to be okay, that it's all going to end, out good, end up good in the end. So what, we, what do we do? We, we rest in our own strength, our own resources, our own power, and we try to control everything. God says, why not run to me for that kind of peace? Why not rest in my sovereignty? Why not rest in the fact, in the remembrance of knowing that I am in control of all things, yet we flee to other lovers? Sometimes we try to find refuge or help in the midst of storms. Have you ever noticed how often we seek to find refuge, perhaps through media or movies or just kind of endless streaming? Uh, because there's a part of our hearts that says, the troubles that I'm facing now, I, I, I need refuge, I need strength, I need somehow to escape, so I'm going to live in the world of someone else through a movie or a film. I'm going to live in someone else's world where my problems don't exist. Now, this is the tricky part about idols. There's nothing wrong with watching movies. Hear my heart in this. But when that good thing becomes an ultimate thing, we will find in our hearts we will watch endlessly. And it's not just to enjoy a movie with family or friends. This is a God thing going on in our heart that we are trying to find refuge and strength. And God says, I am your refuge and strength your very present help in times of trouble. Yet we run to the arms of other lovers. Here's another one. How about joy? Where do we find joy? Is it through the pursuit of relationships? Is it through uh, waiting for pleasant circumstances? Is it, is it through um, the pleasure of other people? We just endlessly run around hoping for someone to delight in us, and we can run the, our entire lives looking for joy, and God says, I give that to you. Find that in your relationship with me. How about one other? Uh, sometimes we need an open door, an open door in your career, an open door in a decision, something that you have to navigate through that you are longing for, God to open a door. How often do we run to our own networks? How often do we try to, to kind of schmooze or hobnob our way through difficult seasons? How often do we run to our, our own credentials, our own pedigree, seeking to open doors in our lives that only God can open? And instead of resting in His sovereignty and just being faithful to what God has called us to do, we run to the arms of other lovers. And in the, in the terminology, in the words of the prophet Micah, this is idolatry. This is spiritual adultery to God. And in God's 
espousal, loving jealousy, he pursues us. Catch this. Don't miss this. There's something complex and, and uh, almost counterintuitive, but something very beautiful about this. In God's loving, spousal jealousy, he pursues us. Now catch this. We often think about jealousy in terms of envy. I want what I don't have. I don't have it, and I want it, so I'm going to get it. That's envy. Jealousy is something different. It's I want what I already have. Now, you and I experience jealousy with our sinful hearts. It's hard. It happens, but it's hard to find moments in our lives when our jealousy was actually pure Perhaps one of the best ways to illustrate it is the same illustration that God is using in Scripture in the, in the context of a marriage relationship. Spouses, is it appropriate to be jealous of, of your spouse? Jealous for their time? Jealous for their attention? Jealous for their affections? Absolutely it is. That's, that's what marriage is. And in God's spousal jealousy, He wants who is His, and that is His people. So when we run to the arms of other lovers, he is brokenhearted, and out of love, He pursues us. He chases after us. And even, and this is profound, is your view of God big enough to handle this? Even if that pursuit of us includes loving judgment against us. Think of that. Because God's judgment is confronting Israel's idolatry. This is after 500 years of this going on, and Micah steps in and shows that God is entering the scene, and in judgment, God is confronting Israel's idolatry, and then we see next that God laments the coming exile. God sheds tears. He mourns because this judgment is coming through exile, and God sees this coming through the prophet Micah. It is declared, and there is lamentation and crying and mourning. Look at what it says next, verses 8 and 9. For this, Micah says, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah." Now, when it says in verse 8, lamentation and wailing and, and going stripped and naked, we look all the way to the end, verse 16, make yourself bald, cut your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourself as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Now, this is a very typical window into what mourning and sadness and despair would look like through the eyes of a prophet in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, when you and I go through a very difficult, challenging season, we often retreat, we often pull into isolation, and some of our deepest emotions and deepest tears and deepest fears and wailing to God happen in private. We cancel appointments. We kind of pull back, and we shed those deep emotions, and then we re-enter as we heal. Oftentimes, that is, takes, that's what takes place in our lives. In the Old Testament, in the prophets, instead of lamenting it and mourning privately, they do it very publicly, tearing clothes, dust in the air, crying and, and pouring out to God. And this is a window into Micah's heart, but also catch this, this is a window into God's heart. 
Remember, we're in an Old Testament prophet. The prophets were the mouthpiece of God that if you want to get a window into God's heart, listen to the words of the prophet. Verse 1, this is the word of the Lord that came to Micah. Now, this is significant. Micah was the first to forecast judgment through exile, and he's the first to lament judgment through exile. This is important. Why? Notice what Micah doesn't do. He doesn't forecast judgment. He doesn't say, hey guys, exile's coming because of your idolatry and sin. Notice what he doesn't do next. Ha 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 ha. You deserve it. He doesn't drag them through the dirt. He doesn't put lemon juice in the wound. He doesn't rub it in. He doesn't lean on the bruise. You know what he does? He cries. He mourns. He laments that simultaneously as he's declaring what is coming, he is lamenting in light of it. That we get a glimpse into God's heart that, that God is lamenting and, and mourning in light of the, the judgment that is coming, the exile that is coming. And I think this is important. Why? I've used the word judgment a number of times already in this text alone. And oftentimes, when you and I think of the word judgment, you know what image comes to mind? Kind of frazzled-haired, wily-eyed, you know, kind of foaming at the mouth, almost this, this cosmic temper tantrum, this out-of-control, just spiteful, you know, stomp on the fingers of those who are trying to climb up to me. That's often the image that we think about, isn't it, when we hear judgment, you know, kind of lightning bolts out of the fingertips. Let the tears of Micah absolutely turn that on its head. When God moves in judgment, he is the loving, jealous spouse pursuing who is already his own, pursuing his people whom he loves. And he moves in judgment out of love. He's not wily-haired and and frazzled and, and temper tantrum against you and I. He's, he's shedding tears in light of this. God doesn't take spiteful delight in bringing judgment against his own people. He is heartbroken in the midst of it. Why? Because he loves us. He loves you. He loves me. And out of love, he is utterly heartbroken for the judgment is, that is coming. And look at verses 10 through 16. This is a window into what this judgment will look like. Micah says, verse 10, Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Bethlehaphra. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place, for the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem, harness the steeds to the chariots. Inhabitants of Lachish, it was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Mereshet Gath, the house of Achziv shall be a deceitful thing. To the kings of Israel, I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Maresha. The glory of Israel 
the shame will come to Adulam. Verse 16, make yourself bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourself as bald as the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. And what Micah is forecasting in these verses is that not long from this prophecy, the Assyrian kingdom is going to come and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And this is so powerful. It's so profound. Why? Because for a massive chunk of the Old Testament, the entire story has been, remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I'm going to promise you a nation. Many peoples look at the stars in the sky, and they get to Egypt, and now they're in slavery. God delivers them from slavery and takes them on this zigzag path to the land that God has promised. So the geography matters. Where God's people are right now matters, and they're in the land. And then in this moment, God says, exile is coming. The pagan nation of Assyria is going to come in and it's going to level your city. It's going to scatter you all around. And then later, the Babylonian kingdom is going to come and, and level the southern part of the kingdom. And this is the judgment that is going uh, to come. And this is an expression, again, capture the complexity and the beauty of this. This is an expression of God's love to his own people that through the exile itself, God is reminding his people and the world that only God saves. Only God saves. And only in him do we find our ultimate needs, our ultimate joy and satisfaction and purpose and delight. It only comes through him. And when we look for it elsewhere, we are down a path of our own demise and our own undoing. This can be illustrated actually very well. There's a, a great, rich, theologically rich scene in one of the classic films. Perhaps many of you have seen it. Wreck-It Ralph. Remember this scene? Remember Vanellope, the little girl with a ponytail full of joy and delight, and she's just vivacious and vibrant and full of life, and she's born to race. Some of you know the film. Some of you are going to go watch it after this service today. And she never gets her chance. She never gets a shot to race. And she was, it's in her blood. Remember the scene? She builds this race car, and in it pours everything that is fast and sleek and aerodynamic, and it's full. It's a cartoon. It's full of candy and all things sweet and chocolatey and good. And she builds it with her friend. Remember her friend, Ralph, who's like the size of a two-story building? with, you know, arms the size of trees and, and fists the size of cinder blocks, and he's massive, and everyone misunderstands him, but he's befriended this little Vanellope, and they build this car, and a race is coming, and she is finally going to fulfill her deepest dreams, her deepest needs, and she's so excited. And then Ralph learns that there is going to be something fatal on this track that Vanellope doesn't know about that if she races this race, it's going to reveal the glitch that she has and it will reveal her brokenness and it will lead to her own demise, her own undoing, and her own death. And Ralph tries to explain this to her. You can't race. And she goes, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Everything in my life has led up to this point. And Ralph says, no, 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 you can't race. You can't do it. You have to stop. She goes, Ralph, what are you doing? Then remember what happens next? Ralph takes this little, vivacious, loving, wonderful girl and, and, and puts her aside. She does not know the full picture. 
he puts her aside and he walks over to her car and he lifts his fists. And remember, at that point, she's crying, Ralph, what are you doing? We built this together. This is my hope. This is my purpose. This is my meaning. Remember what happens next? He smashes it. He utterly destroys it. He smashes it to smithereens. He lays it waste. He beats it to pieces, verse 7. In love. Why? She did not know that this path would lead to her own demise. And there are some expressions of God's love to us that we don't know the full picture. We don't get it. We don't see all that he sees. And sometimes in love, God goes out of his way to destroy our idols that will fail us at our own expense. Let me say that again. Sometimes in love, God will go out of his way to destroy our idols that will fail us at our own expense. If I'm going to take a wooden boat into, a, into the sea and I don't know there's a hurricane coming, one of the most loving things that God could do is absolutely burn that boat to the ground before I even get in it. And that's what God is doing here. God's people have been pouring their soul into idols. God knows their idol, our idols will fail us every single time, so God sends them into exile. Are there idols in your heart? Are there idols in my heart that in love God needs to smash to smithereens? Are there things in your life and my life that we have been putting God-sized hope in and perhaps one of the most loving things God can do before we get too deep into trusting these idols is God would remove them. Do you see his complex, beautiful love for us even through judgment? Is your view of God big enough to handle this? Is your understanding of his love complex enough and wonderful enough? He is the bridegroom to us, the bride. And in love, sometimes he moves in this way to save us. And we don't know the full picture, but he does. Let me illustrate it in another way. Some of you might know this story well and perhaps know this name well, Chuck Colson, who was known, as many of you already know the story, he was known as Nixon's hatchet man. Apparently, he said once he would walk over his own grandmother to get Nixon reelected. He later pled guilty to obstruction of justice and his involvement in the Watergate scandal. This was in the 70s. He spends time in prison. His political career is absolutely smashed to smithereens. I mean, his political career is absolutely destroyed. He later finds Jesus. He founds a ministry called Prison Fellowship after he'd spent time himself in prison that serves uh, inmates and their families, and it's a leading voice in, in, in reform, in criminal justice, and in this slice of law. And he's an advocate. And look at the trajectory that God took his life on. This is Chuck Colson, the hatchet man, as he was known. Listen to what he says. Listen to this. Chuck Colson, this is in 1993. I shudder to think of what I'd been if I had not gone to prison. 
lying on the rotten floor of a cell, you know it's not prosperity or pleasure that's important, but the maturing of the soul. And who would have thought that in the darkest moment of Colson's life, <laughs> the most difficult moment would be a prelude, would alley-oop one of the most beautiful seasons for his soul. And sometimes that happens to us, doesn't it? Some of the darkest, most confusing, saddest, hardest seasons of our life can prelude some of the best seasons for our soul. We never know it in the moment. We only see it in retrospect, God's loving hand where sometimes he removes things from our life that we are absolutely crying over and shedding tears and even angry at God. Why would you destroy this thing in my life? And sometimes we look back and we see God's loving hand working in and through it. Is your, is your view of God complex enough? Does this shock you? that even through judgment, as God himself laments the coming exile, he himself is loving us. Because often we trust things that will fail us. And in love, he goes out of his way to remove them so we can once again see he and he alone is our savior. He and he alone can deliver on these God-sized promises. And I think what Michael 1 is showing us that even God's judgment, even God's judgment is wrapped in tears of loyal love and compassion and kindness and grace to you and I. And this is the pervading uh, metaphor of, of God's love in the Old Testament. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and just, still just, and even his judgment is wrapped in tears of loyal love. And I hope this is helpful. This is why. Because God does not go out of his way to make a mess of your life because he hates you. God does not go out of his way to make a mess of your life because he hates you. But God will go out of his way to pull idols out of your heart because he loves you. Because he cares that deeply for you. And as we look at this season, the, the, the time that we find ourselves in, there is a profound, ironic sense of deep hope that knowing through even the darkest moments, God and his sovereignty is moving in us and, and through our lives and through our families and through our church and through our world. So I just wonder, I wonder, I wonder, I don't know. What if, what if, what if God is using this season to destroy our idols and recapture our attention? Is that the grand purpose of God behind this season? I don't know. I don't know the purposes of God. And in fact, sometimes I think it can be dangerous when we try to guess the purposes of God. So is it the purpose of God to use this season to destroy our idols and capture our attention? I don't know. But could it be one of the results? We can let it be. We can let this season be one in which we realize that nothing else can deliver on the promises that only God can deliver on. There's no other source that we can put our hope in than God. 
He alone can deliver on those, so let him capture your attention. Let this season tear down all idols, so all that left is standing is God. And may you see him, that he and he alone saves. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard truth, a conf confusing in some ways truth. But Lord, through it, may we see the complexity of your love, our bridegroom, we, your bride. Lord, and I ask that by your Spirit you would minister to each and every heart. I don't know the week that we've all come from. I don't know the season that we've all come from, but you do, Lord. And by your Spirit, may you wade through our questions and lament and tears and frustration, and may you softly speak into our hearts, I love you. And even though this season is hard, I'm committed to you. May we find hope in that. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.vcgurney.org.